VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to Arsenal's draw with Southampton. Has the title race gone away from them as they prepare for a huge clash with Manchester City at the Etihad? We react to City's FA Cup semi-final against Sheffield United and Manchester United against Brighton as they come through a penalty shootout. Also, big games in the Premier League as Spurs are hammered away at Newcastle. Big games at the bottom with victories for West Ham United and Leicester City as well. Plenty to discuss on a bumper Monday morning. This is the game with Tony Cascarino, the former Chelsea and Aston Villa striker, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson, the former Nottingham Forest fullback. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. This is the game. Hello and welcome to the game podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Uh, another quiet weekend in the Premier League, so not much to talk about. Um, where to begin? It, it, this time it is actually quite tough to decide where to begin but we're going to go all the way back to Friday night I think because it's so important the top of the Premier League table right now is 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 getting closer because I think the title race has now moved very firmly in Manchester City's favour it was an incredible night at the Emirates I was there remarkable atmosphere um but it was weird it was it was a strange one where you almost felt the fans could well, they were doing everything they could to support the team but as soon as the whistle went for half time as soon as the whistle went for full time you felt such a high level of deflation i think everyone in the stadium maybe felt including the players the title had gone out of their hands but it is still kind of in their hands we'll talk about the game on wednesday night against manchester city ultimately it was a massive result for southampton a three all draw against the leaders they'd led 2-0 they'd led 3-1 And in the end, Arsenal snatched a dramatic draw, but it was a third draw in three games, which leaves Manchester City five points behind Arsenal with two games in hand. And you feel Arsenal must beat City at the Etihad on Wednesday night if they are to stop an ever-improving City side from lifting a fifth Premier League title in six years. A little stat. Arsenal have conceded the two fastest goals in the Premier League this season. Nine seconds against Bournemouth. Philip Billing scored that one. 27 seconds here. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz scoring for Southampton. Both of those goals at home, which is rather extraordinary given they're the team at the top of the table. But there you go. But Tony, I did. I, I was on the radio on Friday night and I described the, the scenes at full time as a cup final where both teams had lost because both sets of players slumped onto the floor exhausted but it, but it also had that feeling of being definitive it felt like it was the end of the road because Southampton felt that's it we're going down Arsenal felt that's it title gone 
it's easy in hindsight because you look at the game and you can go, well, the reason they've slumped on the floor, uh, both teams, and certainly if we were talking about Arsenal first, is because they knew they had to win that game. You know, after two games of being pegged back, the pressure is on, fans are expecting them to win, we in the media are saying, well, Southampton, bottom of the table, bottom of the table, they're there for the taking. Don't make mistakes. And this is ultimately what they did. They made mistakes in the game. And of course it's going to feel like a defeat in, in many ways because you've dropped two points at a pivotal time of the season. I was astonished by Arsenal's way of going behind and how they're getting pegged back because the goal that got me was one when uh, at West Ham where Thomas Partey tries to control the ball with the outside of his foot in front of his own back four and they get robbed of the ball by Declan Rice and they end up conceding. That to me was a big moment. You stop making mistakes. You are well capable of scoring goals. It's clear we all know Arsenal are going to get goals from now on into the end of the season. But don't give chances, opportunities to the opposition. And it's exactly what happened. Hugh, you just mentioned how fast. Ramsdale's choice of passing the ball after 15 seconds in that area, which is high risk. You know, even to very good footballers, it's high risk. And and I think they've made mistakes that ultimately... You know, it's really weird. They've been incredible, Arsenal, this season. They've been great to watch. They've played a style. There's many styles within their team. And yet, as they get into the final hurdles, the mistakes are becoming more regular. Also, Party made exactly the same mistake for the third goal. Like, in, in the build-up yeah. to, the, to, the, to the corner from which he scored, he did the same thing. It's like he took the ball under pressure and he tried to almost flick it over the, you know, the, the midfielder's foot. They're playing stupid football now. <laughs> They're doing things that are stupid. That's a stupid thing to do, and he's not learned from the. He's not even learned from the thing from the mistake he made in the past. And they're playing emotional football now as well. Yeah. And part of that is because of the way they're going behind, and it kind of they get so riled up, and it's like it's almost panic. And you saw it was Inchenko bringing in the team and like looking frenzied, getting getting them in a huddle. I thought that was a bit much. Like it was early in the game. There's only a couple of people when you look look at how they tried to fight back who really really. Stood up and like took responsibility, and Odegaard, for me, was the one who led that. But we've seen them, you know, there have been questions over over the season. We've said that many times. If they lose Jesus, how are they going to cope? They coped. As I often said, if they lose Party, how are they going to cope? In any game they've missed, they've managed. They've lost Saliba, and now we're seeing what happens. And they miss Xhaka in this game in particular. Yeah, but I think for the kind of specific way that Zinchenko, Xhaka, and Martinelli link up, absolutely. And He's a leader, despite all the kind of mm. his mistakes of the past. But holding holding is a massive step down from from Saliba. And w- while we thought that was the case, and it is the case with Jesus, and is the case with Party, they managed to fill those holes and get away with it. The, the, the last three games they haven't. Gregor, can I just say on that that point? Look, let's not get away from. Yes, the individuals are important. Just don't make mistakes. You know, we're talking about incidents in the game with Thomas Party, bad choice. You know, bad choice by Ramsdale. It doesn't matter who you're missing if you make bad choices. I've played against winners of the Premier League and winners in other leagues. Did you know what the very best teams? They give you very little. They'll yeah. match you physically. Technically, you won't get the better of them. But I'll tell you what, they don't give you anything. And Arsenal are giving presents away at the moment. There's no doubt, like, you're both right about the mistakes and things. And, uh, you know, Gregor, you're talking about stupid football. That, that can definitely be said at times. And you, But I was interested in hearing you talk about the emotion as well. And it makes me think you, we're kind of almost asking Arsenal to be two teams in one season. Because that emotion and that stupid football, that stupid football has been brilliant football at times this season. And so 
you've we've asked them to be this brilliant emotional uh, exciting brave team and now we're asking them to be three-time title winners who know how to get the job done like uh, there was a match the match a few um weeks ago probably even longer ago now the fulham game away yeah. from home i was working that day and that came just after the bournemouth comeback another mad comeback another emotional game another crazy load of drama and they went to fulham scored some early goals no mistakes job done and i tried to get the um the cover of the game supplement to be the headline boring boring arsenal ha 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 very funny didn't get didn't get past the head of production but never mind but the point was that that was the one game where they did that i.e they looked like three-time title winners who go out and get the job done tony as you said you know you don't give anything away but i do think playing the role of uh, endless defender of Mikel arteta that's very hard particularly with this young group of players inexperienced other than the likes of zinchenko and jesus to kind of be that kind of experienced title winning machine if you like yes obviously the mistakes are a separate part of that but that that's that's fair, isn't it, Tony? In terms of like combining that experience, you know, we said it with Liverpool, didn't we, as well? Before they won that title, finally getting Klopp getting it over the line, it does play on your mind trying to be that kind of experienced machine like Manchester City are, like Manchester United were before. Just, I think a lot of Arsenal fans, reflecting on the last few games, would say it's too easy to say inexperience has come into it, even inexperience in the title race, because they feel like some of their more experienced players are the ones making the errors that that. Tony's talking about you know it hasn't been the young kids in fact it has been Zinchenko whose emotion I think has taken hold of his game during this period of time it's been Thomas Partey for example Gabriel uh, Gabriel Jesus should have had a hat trick in this game at the weekend you know you you came off that game and you didn't want to reflect too poorly because uh, again Arsenal have had a great season and you don't even want to compare him to Haaland because you think well that's a bit silly you know he's never going to be a 50 goal a season striker but you're even walking off that pitch and thinking God, Ivan Tony would have scored a couple of those mm. you know or even Danny Welbeck might have scored one of those you know it's one of those where you think in the pressure moments he has to take those chances because that is the difference between winning the league and not so it's one of those situations where yes I get exactly what you're saying when we look at the last three games really second half totally outplayed by Liverpool it's not really anything to do with inexperience. Poor defending for the goals against West Ham United. You wouldn't say they didn't manage the emotion. You wouldn't even. It's just basics that Tony's talking about. So it's really hard to say. I don't think we've seen them crumble under the pressure. I don't think we've seen them, you know, exposed for inexperience. I just think, as Tony's really pointing to, they haven't been good enough in these games in the key moments. I would love to say that there's a bigger picture to it, but actually they're just not playing that well. No, and you, Tom, you mentioned there about playing, you know, a different style from the one that they've adopted in the early part of the season. One of the greatest Premier League wins ever was Leicester. When Leicester won it, they won the Premier League playing toe-to-toe football with nearly everybody. Got to January, and they, got, I think they had five one-nil wins in the second part of the season. Johnny, because- Johnny Noscroft referenced that in his piece in, in Sunday Times. I think he's... Even Ranieri, Ranieri sent them all on, off on holiday, and there was a there was a break, and they got like a week off, and they came back, and there was like one nil, one nil, one nil, the odd two one. It's, it's managing don't games. Make that, that is, now. yeah. You know, let's let's get one big point out. You know, you have a way of playing, and everybody's watching you week in, week out. Then you get to the final ten games. Now everybody knows exactly what Arsenal are about, how yeah. they play. Now, can you just adapt a little bit and grind and get over the line without making mistakes? Because that's how I felt when Arsenal had an eight-point lead. I thought they could do it because I did think just slight tweaks to how they play, but don't make mistakes will get you over the line. 
now they've made loads of mistakes and now they've got the team breathing down the neck. The last team you'd want in the Premier League is Man City breathing down. Look at Man City. Have, have they changed the way they play? We've mentioned it in the Champions League. They're content to sit and have 42% mm. against Bayern Munich and defend resolutely, defend the box and play direct and hitting the break and stuff. We shouldn't like admonish them for that. That's the way to, to succeed. Yeah, You've got to play against you know the circumstances you're in and your opponent. So... When people talk about experience, like a lot of times people roll their eyes. It's like it is important. It's not. It's not like having won the Premier League before. It's just having a bit of nouse about when to do the right things and when not. And like as I say, party twice making the same mistake is just flabbergasting for me. Southampton played two up front. They had clear intentions. They were going to press high, and when Arsenal tried to play it, they were going to try and swarm them. That's how the first goal came about. I I mean, I'm. I was very surprised that Ruben Sellers changed his tactics at half-time mm. so early in the game. Not saying going to five at the back was a, a thing that you shouldn't do. Carlos Alcaraz, yes, he got a yellow card in the first half, but obviously he's playing basically as an attacking midfielder slash forward. You know, if he's taken off at half-time because you think he's definitely getting a second yellow, that is surprising. So I did think it was a tactical switch, which invited pressure. Yeah. And, 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 and yes, they went 3-1 up, I get it. But... um you know, even after that point, it was an onslaught. And actually, they were testing Arsenal a lot more further up the pitch um, by having bodies in that area. And I, I just think he gave even more impetus to Arsenal. Obviously, it's very hindsight. They they conceded two very late goals. And in the end, they almost got out of there with a victory. But um, <laughs> I feel like they were going to. It was extraordinary, yeah, wasn't it, at the end? It's yeah. like, you know, moments earlier, you could hear a pin drop. And then suddenly, it was like this raucous energy and atmosphere. And then again, when they realised they're not going <laughs> to... You thought they were going to go to the line. You realised they weren't Oh, completely flat and deflated again. Yeah. So, you're, it's extraordinary. You were saying in the, your intro there, like, it's kind of throwing it into Man City's favour, but it's still in their hands. It's, it's in and out their hands. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what it feels like. Mm. It because it is still in their hands. It's, and it's also in Manchester City's hands. Yeah. Because obviously, whoever wins the game on Wednesday yeah. will take a huge step towards winning the title. My, 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 and look, and it's a different scenario, but when Arsenal won the title and they went to Anfield and won 2-0, George Graham had a tactic for 70-odd minutes of how to stop Liverpool and said, and it's been well documented afterwards, that we could win the game in the last quarter. Can Arsenal go to the Etihad, stop them, and win the game in the last quarter of the match? I think they have to just completely forget about the last three games. I mean, I was thinking that after the game, I was asking, you know, how do they lift themselves for a game against Manchester City? And in the end, you haven't got time to recover. No. So you haven't got time to process what's happened. You literally have to... Ignorance is bliss here. You have to completely forget about it. Don't even worry about the game against Southampton. This is a cup final. This is the only thing that matters. Everything that's gone before is out the window because if you dwell on some of the mistakes you've made in the past few games, it's going to play into your mind. you just got to go out there, try and put out your best performance and see where it takes you. Is there any sense... (laughs) Yeah, is there any sense going into games where, obviously, if they'd got the win... They would have gone into this game being like, okay, well, a draw's not a terrible thing. Like, how is what is the mentality like in those games where now they've got to go into it thinking, right, we need to really win this? Does that does that change it at all? Because I often think, you know, when you see teams, whether it's your own team or others, where they know that a draw is enough, you get the worst out of them in but a you, weird way. Do you remember this conversation a few weeks back about the sort of different, you know, kind of mental states you're in, depending on how it is, it's whether you're the hunter or the hunted. We were kind of dis- describing it. Although they're still being hunted, it has changed. They know now that they have to, they have to win really 
to keep it in their hands. So who knows? I might I might almost sort of unburden them a little bit. It might be too early to say that as well. It might be that that only happens yeah, if, I, they, if they lose. I think we all have to be very careful because in life it teaches you sometimes lessons of uh, you could go there and get a draw. You know, it's not a guarantee that City are going to win no. every game. I One of my biggest memories of a, a failing at Arsenal was they played Monaco in the Champions League and they... Um, they were two 0 down, and they scored a late goal. And I remember then picking someone player. I can't remember who picked the ball out the back of the net, sprinted back to the halfway line, and I'm thinking, you've got a second game away at Monaco. You can beat them in Monaco. Don't do anything stupid. But it was a real crazy scenario. They end up conceding a third, literally a minute later. I remember thinking, you've just knocked yourself out of the Champions League. They went to Monaco and won two 0 And in that moment, you know, don't do crazy things. Don't get you know, if you go one behind, one behind at the Etihad, just keep doing what you you've done best over the season. You might get presented something. You know, Brentford went there and won. They had a style. And I remember watching that game, thinking, Man City can't handle Ivan Tony. You know, mm. it was just. I know Arsenal haven't got that, but you just got to have a mindset of, I've come second at Villa uh, Premier League. And I, I went there, and at the end of that season, we was all so disappointed. We knew we made mistakes in the running. We drew 3-3 at home to Norwich, where it was a game we should have won. We've ended up drawing 3-3. We drew at Everton. I scored an own goal. <laughs> it <was> like, <laughs> you know, in the final. But it was... Do you know, the, these small margins are yeah. so important. Do you yeah. see City, though? Because the thing was that the thing I'm most terrified about is that Gregor Robertson's going to be right from weeks ago, where he said the City juggernaut will come. That's the thing now. City don't look like they're necessarily going to drop points in elsewhere in the running. That's the only thing. Do you think they still could if you know if well, Arsenal I'd, get a draw? I'd go full circle, Tom, and where we start the conversation. I don't think they'll make mistakes. Mm. I don't think they'll hand anything to anybody. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to be getting up next day and what was John Stones doing? What was Edison thing? I just don't see that happening. I still think City will drop points. Yeah, they they I could still, do. They, they could got, do. They got so many games by comparison to Arsenal. I think Arsenal have six or seven games left and it's going to be, I think, somewhere in the region of 14 if, you know, if they get past Real Madrid, there'll be the extra game. And I just, I, I look at City's running, I think there's potential there. But Arsenal are going to pick up enough points to capitalise on even, that. Even, <laughs> even if they lose the game, you've got, you've got to think Arsenal, if they can get back to form, have the potential to win the rest of their matches. All of the rest of their games. They've got Newcastle though, but they have the potential to beat Newcastle. They do. They're, they're a good but enough Newcastle. side to beat Newcastle. Yeah. Chelsea as well, which yeah. you know doesn't seem a real toughie at the moment. Does but it? but I just think with the rotation of Manchester City, when they get you know those games against Real Madrid, here he comes. He's back focus. in a pet pet clanger. <laughs> no, no, I just I just um, I'm t- you know they're playing against some teams that are fighting for things they and, are, yeah. and weird things happen at the end of seasons we've seen it so many times mm. unexpected results we saw it on Friday night and I just feel like there's still the potential for City to, to drop one of those uh, and now will it mean that they don't win the title I don't know because ultimately two games in hand if you beat Arsenal in midweek which I think they definitely could do then it might not matter that you draw a game so yeah absolutely Hugh and one thing you don't want to do I mean it sounds it's really stupid obvious just don't get beat as well if you don't win the game and you get something out of it and you still got that you know any one game scenario someone can overtake the I, other I do think You've City got to need to win one game though scenario. I do think City need to win to win the league they will call City as a good result if they draw the game but I do, like I say, I think they'll drop points at one point at one point in the season, and it might be level on points. Maybe it goes to goal difference at the end. 
So we haven't got a clue, so it's no, time for predictions. You have to look at history of Premier League and how teams have got over the line and results elsewhere. We've had the radios of years gone by. You know, it's... Before we really look ahead to the game at the Etihad in, in a little bit more detail, I do want to talk about Southampton. Four points from safety. Big game coming up in midweek, which is the real reason to bring it up because they host Bournemouth on Thursday night. They do play Newcastle away on Sunday, which I, I don't think they'll be eyeing as all three points. But then they go to Nottingham Forest uh, Monday the 8th of May. So really, I think at the end of that, we'll know whether they're definitely staying in the Premier League or not. But I do believe they have to beat Bournemouth at home this yeah. week. And the trouble with that is that, as this game proved, and as they've proved in other performances against Chelsea and the like, they seem to play better against bigger teams. The bigger teams who, beforehand, you're thinking, oh, Southampton will get nothing from this. And that, that would be maybe even the worry for them, that they've got this kind of big six-pointer against Bournemouth. And that the onus will be on them, particularly with the table as it stands at the minute, with Bournemouth in in bit of an advantage. That's the problem, I'd say. That's the worry for me. They look a little bit cut adrift, and that's why dropping the two on Friday was such a blow. Let's quickly reflect on Manchester City. Um, Rian Mahrez scoring the first hat trick in an FA Cup semi final since 1958. City keep their quest for the treble on course which seems very strange to say because they're in a semi-final of the Champions League against Real Madrid who aren't too shabby in that competition Uh, they will face Manchester United in a first all-Manchester derby in the FA Cup final and they are second in the Premier League so it seems weird to be talking about the treble but there you go great to see Mahrez get the hat-trick it was almost too easy I think this game, I mean, people would say they're disappointed in Sheffield United, but they're a championship side. They were missing a couple of their best players who were obviously on loan from Manchester City, and it was always going to be a very tough ask. Yeah, a championship side who've been chasing promotion all season in their own right, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a kind of championship side who this is their their only thing, you know, they've done incredibly well all season. And like, you know, you're talking about tiredness, fatigue, and things like that, that'll have played a factor for them as well. So I don't think it'd be incredibly harsh to have a, uh, any kind of crit- major criticism of Sheffield United and their performance. City just made it look so easy, and that comes back to the kind of the juggernaut rolling rolling along. Sheffield United would be disappointed with the first two goals, so you know, gifting them a penalty, yeah, yeah. gifting turnover in midfield, and then gifting them uh, <laughs> the freedom of the penalty box as well. Mary, so it was a great kind of a great run, and he like had the confidence and the... he has that ability, Mares, doesn't he, to run and he. Because he faints and yeah. kind of fakes to move, he can kind of run in a straight line, and the defenders move because they think he, they kind of guess he's going left and right, and they kind of move, and it's like the parting still, of the sea. It was still weird. Moses, yeah, <laughs> Jack Robinson's face Jack Robinson's on the like slow mo. Robinson's like running inside on as yeah. if he's like waiting for a pass outside when there's no one there. Yeah, and Egan was kind of I don't know, expecting him to go the other way or something, and like they both looked a bit silly. But so yeah, that, and also they had a chance through and die at the start. They could yeah. have possibly taken the lead. That was a good chance. But yeah, City are just on a different stratosphere, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And Arsenal will be, I think, worthy opponents uh, in midweek in the Premier League. Um, But I just wanted to ask you about the approach from both sides here. Because obviously, psychologically, there's so much on this. And and when it comes to the title, strange things happen um, under pressure to people. So I just wonder whether you think, well, you already told me, I guess, Arsenal need to stay in the game, but... There's part of me that thinks, does that does that hand the initiative to City? Are you going to be good enough on the counter-attack to beat them at home if you cede the possession? Or are you just going to basically give Kevin De Bruyne the ball and say, there you go, see if you can make an assist for Erling Haaland. You might be 2-0 down early on. I would love to see Arsenal show up and say, let's play our game, let's take the game to them. 
Yeah, well, uh, of course, they, they can't come too far away. I mean, we touched on it earlier about a tactic and two styles in one season. You know, Odegaard's going to have to get the better of Kevin De Bruyne and what he produces for Arsenal. With that, I'd add that years gone by, we've watched in the last four or five years, Liverpool gone toe-to-toe with City and we've seen very different outcomes in games at Anfield or at the Etihad. And there is a way that they've both played and gone for each other, gone for the jugular. I do think Arsenal have to have that threat because you've got to use Saka and Martinelli. You know, you have to try and get them two to produce like we saw on Friday night. You know, they're young lads, and we talked about the experienced players, I'm not saying letting them down, but just making the mistakes. Them two guys can cause, you know, in my opinion, the space that you can get behind John Stones and the space, I'm not sure if Nathan Aki will be fit. But definitely that area is somewhere where Arsenal can make a difference. Just don't fall in the trap of the two centre-halves at Arsenal, whether it's holding or whether it's um, Gabriel and Saliba might be fit. I don't think it's a good idea to leave two and not protect yourself against Haaland. You know, what we you just mentioned Sheffield United, and one thing Sheffield United did, their two full-backs sat and they had three at the back. They basically had five at the back and denied any space for Erling Haaland. Arsenal can't go, let's squeeze up, get really high up the pitch and leave loads of space behind them. Because if it is holding and he get, and Herlan Ireland gets on his shoulder, there's only one winner by five yards and he will cause them a lot of problems. So I do think they have to be really smart how they defend against City. But don't lose your ability to still create and produce moments because Arsenal are a very capable side. Prediction? I think Seti will win. Tom? Such a brave man, Gregor. I think it'll be a draw. And I think I agree with Tony that you can't, Arsenal can't go too far away from what they've done all season because no. I don't see how they'll get anything out of the game by trying to, as much as I said it before, in these other games, it might have been better to play a little bit safer and not play those kind of passes out from the back that cause them so many yeah. problems. I don't think they can go too far away from that. They've got, they've got to try and be positive. And, and Ramsdale, don't get too clever. With your passing. He's he's got away with quite a lot this season. He's a very good goalkeeper in lots and lots of ways, but don't get too clever. I think City will win three one, something like that, by a couple of goals. I'm expecting drama. I think City maybe three two late on. I'm expecting a tactical file and masterclass as well. Probably <laughs> lots of little tricks and f- flicks and uh couple of yellow cards probably no reds because it's lovely Arsenal and Manchester City and there won't be any, any badness but yeah we'll see it was disappointment for Arsenal I was with a Spurs fan on Saturday he was absolutely delighted by it <laughs> enjoying their collapse I wonder how he's feeling now <laughs> after the game at St James's Park Newcastle United frankly humiliated Tottenham Hotspur at five goals Inside 21 minutes, it ended 6-1. Newcastle taking a huge leap towards Champions League football next season. They're now six points clear of Spurs with a game in hand. Spurs only have six games left. They host Manchester United on Thursday. Before we get to Tottenham, incredible performance from Newcastle. All of the hallmarks of, of what we're now seeing, Eddie Howe's Newcastle, which is just intensity, front foot, bodies in the box, uh, commitment into every challenge, organisation. I mean, they look every part a Champions League team. And direct as well. Like, Willock's pass was exquisite. As you say, it's once they, you know, they press really, really, really well, and as soon as they turn the ball over, they're making the clearest pass to goal. Murphy, I think Murphy's kind of big grin basically summed up that first <laughs> 15 minutes or whatever it was. Just like, wow, what is going on here? And you're absolutely right. It's like, you're, he's a he's an example of what 
of Eddie Howe's done like in the improvements we've seen in terms of individuals as well like Longstaff Murphy uh, Shar, Joe Ellington yeah all these players who like Cameron yeah yeah we're looking at for so long thinking we're kind of sad indictments of Newcastle's recruitment basically you're wondering how you know Murphy was like I remember there was when he, I think he got a new five year deal and it was like Newcastle are just hoarding players because it's cheaper than buying new ones and now he's he looks like played every game. He's played in, in every game, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know who would have thought that? And he's looked every like a good value for it too. A good sub to come on as well a lot of the time and with his energy and pace. Yeah, they were just brilliant. So much. You're right. Energy and intensity. That is basically what underlines everything that makes this Newcastle team so good. I think talking about those two qualities, it, it's particularly impressive when you think about losing that cup final against Manchester United. I think and it kind of around that time we've mentioned it before as well they'd had a bit of a slump in the league as well drawn a few games they shouldn't have so for them to come back like this now and be performing obviously not at the same level as Manchester City but with that same kind of relentless attitude and approach to games that was what blew Tottenham away more than anything as well as Tottenham being pretty dismal that was what blew them away they just looked absolutely relentless and they they kept doing it 3 and 4 nil too you know, yeah, you exactly. don't know if he's but, enough. Yeah, it was remarkable. They, they need the sort of animal that goes with their club to be a little bit more vicious because you want to call it some kind of like bird of prey. But a, mag, <laughs> a, mag, a magpie doesn't kind of fit. But They're they, pretty they, ruthless, magpies, though, them. when they want yeah. to. The magpie's talons tore spurs <laughs> apart. It doesn't quite fit. But, um, but yeah, it basically was that. Yeah, I want to tell you a story, all right, about Eddie Howe. A friend of mine who's, a, who's been an agent, he was a player professional player I played alongside but he took Eddie out to northern France to watch a player and they watched the game and he said this player has uh, won the ball on the edge of the box driven forward got involved in a situation at the other end of the pitch didn't score but an effort and he asked Eddie about what do you think and Eddie said he's not what I'm looking for he's a terrific player but he's not what I'm looking for not this type of midfielder and uh, my mate says he said well Eddie, you know, further down the line, he went, yeah, but not at the moment. We don't need that. We need a creative, technical player. And the player he was talking about was N'Golo Kante. And Eddie has looked at him, saw all his qualities, but because he didn't think that's what Bournemouth at the time needed, he said, no, great player, not what I'm looking for, though. I'm one of more technical footballing player. And that tells me, further down the line, of what... Eddie Howe looks at with his team what's necessary not so much can I go and get the best player yeah. he, he looks at people to do jobs now when I look at Jacob Murphy I saw him and we've all watched him lower down the pecking order and, and what he's become by just being directed and instructed by a manager to how to get the best out of him and I think he's done that across the board at Newcastle. You know, it's not one or two players, it's experienced players, it's young players. And I think he's really put that... And I'd like to say this, and Gregor would know where I'm coming from in this. Sometimes you can get blessed. You can walk into a dressing room and you can go, do you know what? I've inherited a really good bunch. Yeah. They might not be forming at their best ability, but inheriting a good bunch of lads who want to learn and who want to improve and have got a point to prove as well. And that's how I see what's happened at Newcastle with Eddie Howe. It's weird because you watch them and the spirit, especially inside St James's Park, the atmosphere, every, you know, they've got that feeling of a team that's been together for years and years where they're almost like they're all best mates and they're in a family, if you like. And I watched that game and I thought, especially because the the conversations after the game really reflected on, you know, Newcastle in the Champions League. And I kind of, my mind kind of drifted to, I wonder what they'll do in the Champions League. 
and I thought, oh, they'll have to add one or two, and I thought... Four or five, six or seven. No, 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 it wasn't even that. I thought, oh, I wouldn't want to add any players because they're so together. So it was almost like, do you want to throw anyone into this? Because it's like, even Callum Wilson off the bench, but like, you know, everyone loves him. Isaac seems to have fit in straight away. Willock, who, of course, you know, every time I watch Willock, I think he should score at least a goal a game. He's just one of those players, always gets himself at least one good chance in a football match, mm. doesn't score as many as you can, but he's got a big smile on his face, and everyone loves him, and he's making assists during the game. Almiron, who, who's mm. got that story of, of, you know, a player who was the laughing stock of the Premier League and other other players as well, and now, you know, what he's done so far this season, you look at the defenders they've brought in, the Dan Burns, you know, like... Botman, who obviously is a quality player, share the change in the performances that he's had. Trip, you go around the team and you're like, who would you replace? Do you know what I mean? It's just that. It's, it's that. But then group. it's the reality, though, isn't it? That's the problem. I completely agree with you. It'd be lovely and refreshing to see that group have a crack at the Champions League. But then, realistically, are they going to be good enough? Is well, the Champions League is the Champions League then going to detract from hopes of getting top four again? Which then is becomes the a the expectation among the fans, b the financial reality of wanting that money, wanting that draw of signing players. Yeah, we've got Champions League once, and we'll have it again. Come and sign for us and have a five year contract, Mister Incredibly Talented Player from the French Division, etc., etc. So you, there's then that balancing act, isn't there? Could they have one, could, could they have a crack at the Champions League and then drop down to seventh in the league? No, hmm. probably not. Could they? That's the thing. Look, there's an answer quite simple to this. I mean, I think Eddie are, Eddie Howe's smart enough to know that don't up, unsettle the group, but if we can add. And it was, which is really important, the mentality of the player you're bringing in, that is important now. N- now they're at a stage, yes, you, oh, you're right, Hugh, there's a real moulded squad there in, with a certain quality. Don't lose that. But whoever you bring in has to add to that. It's funny because, like, think back to, to Bournemouth and they weren't very good at recruitment in this time. Mm-hmm. You know, when they made the step into the Premier League, they tried to kind of obviously raise their, their, their horizons and there weren't that many... Major hits. A lot they relied upon a core of players who brought them from the championship for a long time. But he deserves great credit for the initial kind of the first transfer window, where, as you say, he brought in Trippy, Burn, players who were like solid citizens. Yeah. Even Wood, although he's moved yeah, on to, yeah, yeah. to Botman, Forest. Botman came in. Uh, but yeah. the thing that's sort of, I think he does deserve credit for that because the club was still kind of figuring out a structure, and I don't think Dan Ashworth had even come in money yet. Money helps, though. Clearly, money helps. <laughs> but no, I don't, I don't but think he could have done that at Bournemouth. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and Gomares as well. As well. Like, yeah, yeah. Nick but, Pope, yeah, another one. But now, now, now they do have all this, all that kind of in place. And Dan Ashworth's there, and they're setting up. The, you know, they they'll be planning for the future. It'll be very interesting to see how they, how they, because they still are navigating another kind of. Forgetting the Champions League, it's another yeah, yeah level yeah, up yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. And you're looking at, you know, are they ready for that? We got to talk about Tottenham Hotspur. We have to talk about Tottenham Hotspur, and you want to you want to reflect on this, I think, from a football perspective, and say what on earth happened. And then you kind of think, since Antonio Conte's left, the level of performance, the the, the results. It's funny, actually. A mate messaged me as soon as he saw the team, and he said, "I really like Pape Sar, um, and I'll, I'll be watching him this afternoon." And I I, said, I looked at the team and said, "They're playing four at the back." He went, "Yeah." I went, "They're going to get smashed." <laughs> I went, "Have you seen them with five at the back?" Like they're awful, and I said, I, and I like Pape Sar too, but he played one really good game in Europe, 
and he's not I've seen him in the Premier League since and he's not really ready to be a starter in the Premier League a uh, big side in particular but they mean uh, I, I, and by the way I'm not blaming him for the result in any way shape or form but my point was I, I looked at that team 1-11 to 11 and went the four at the back are going to get exposed mm. they're not good enough defenders like Newcastle they're, they're away at Newcastle on top of it and um, I was I'm not saying that I wasn't surprised by the scoreline I was massively surprised by the scoreline but I didn't think that Spurs were going to get out of Newcastle without conceding at least three goals because I just that 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 team is not strong enough for Christian Stellini to have made that decision to play four three three away from home. But it is just very quickly because it links to your point. It was interesting to note the amount of Tottenham fans, you know, social media and that was working within the office who were almost pleased to see the four three three. They were like, "Oh, we've not seen, we've we've wanted this all season." And then there are other journalists, neutral journalists like you, who saw it and thought. This could, they could be in trouble here with these wing-backs and just those two at centre-back. So I'm just saying that that is interesting in terms of the, where the club are at the minute and that adds to that feeling of being completely lost, I would say, that the fans are kind of at times clamouring for changes, tweaks that they can't necessarily implement with the players that they've got. It was brave to play four at the back with Perisic and Poro as your full-backs. Yeah, exactly. Brave, some would say brave, some would say foolish. But like none of this had anything to do with the formation. Like <laughs> It might slightly... All the players have played four at the back. They've all played. Those midfielders have all played in a three-man midfield. Like none of us, none of that mattered. It was just like absolutely abject from minute one. And like the way that Joe Ellington strolled through the box with like across Romero, I think it was across uh, run off Poro as well. Poro as well, yeah, yeah. And then no, that no, that was oh, the second sorry, goal. when he that dribbled, yeah, 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 when he, he dribbled just ran in. through the yeah, box, yeah, 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 yeah. And, like it's just incredible. No one laid a glove on. And a Spurs player for the first twenty minutes, and it was. But even still, like it was gobsmacking. And Hugo Lloris, like he always fronts up, which I, I feel like I want to give him credit for, but not on this, not today. He fronts because, up in a kind of very good PR way, but actually yeah. on the pitch, it's very strange. That was the other thing as well, like because you've got Lloris, who's a captain, and I don't know about you two, you've got slightly more experience of playing the game than I have, but in terms of leadership on the pitch, he never seems like a particularly like galvanising captain and then obviously their other captain leader is Harry Kane who again is a kind of lead by example type captain isn't a kind of grab players Mm. isn't a kind of screaming shouting isn't kind of group getting the group together that's the other thing that I think with Lloris and that's the thing with Tottenham at the minute got an interim manager who's inexperienced and they look completely rudderless completely lacking in any kind of leadership or any kind of path really where they're going we could do a podcast that could last till tomorrow on that game alone I mean, they were so bad. I've always said don't don't allow players to make passes with their head up, even if they're you know not the best in the in the country in the Premier League. And if you give a good footballer time to lift their head and pass the ball, the midfield was non-existent. Only Ollie Skip was really the one who was making any challenges, and he nearly got himself sent off. Honestly, I said this on radio yesterday morning. That whole back line in the goalkeeper, I would have done a Newcastle on. I would have changed a lot. I mean, I might have kept Romero, but please don't tell me Eric Dyer. He's been so lauded about his performances. I've seen a player that's been there, what's he been there, six, seven, eight years, Eric Dyer? He's been a squad player for the majority of it. Twice he got caught out of position. Um, and it's not just him, it's it's so many of them. You know, I 
I always look at clubs at the, the very top of the tree, and it's Joe Lewis is the owner. Very rarely see him at a game. He's been more absent than Mike Ashley because Mike Ashley did turn up, got stick, but Joe Lewis is never there. Daniel Levy's an accountant, and then you go down from the accountant, then you've got the problem with the managers, then you've got players like Loris, who are a French you know, cup winner, World Cup winner, captain of the football club, who knows his future. He would have known before yesterday's game that Tottenham would be looking elsewhere because they should have been for a while. Then you've got the Harry Kane scenario. And I just think it's a really bad, toxic football club at the moment. The fans had a go at Davison Sanchez, right, the week before. They had a go at him, but really it was more about the whole football yeah, club. Yeah, yeah. Yesterday, the, the interim coach named four centre-halves on his bench. Even he knew that he'd probably have a problem before the game because Tandanga's on the bench, Ben Davis is on the bench. Longley, who I've seen at Barcelona, I couldn't believe he even joined Tottenham. I couldn't believe they even took him. So you've got, you got him as well. I mean, there's Davison a fourth... Sanchez. Davison Sanchez yeah. is the fourth one. You've got four centre-halves on, on your, your subs bench. I Honestly... I think, that, I think, that, I think the... Uh... <laughs> The bit that was almost like the custard pie in the face to the Spurs fans as well was having brought on Davinson Sanchez last week and then hooked him, and that yeah. was the story. Having to bring him on to rescue you this time around at Newcastle United, it was like, oh, actually, we're not defending well enough this week, so let's bring on the player who I had to hook last week because we weren't defending well enough. It kind of underlined that there was nothing in the squad. There is nothing in the squad. The recruitment's been... Listen, for me personally... We just can't think of Tottenham from here on out. It's a bit like Everton when they spent the money and the 500 million was gone. And people were like, well, we meant to be top eight under Rafa. And it was like, that's gone. And the idea that Tottenham are going to be a regular top four side with this approach to recruitment, with the lack of spending that they've had, lack of spending that they've had over over a period over, of time. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah this, over this a period year of time. they spent 160 million and they'd need to win all six of the remaining games to level last season's points, darling. Yeah. So, like, that's a pretty sad indictment yeah. of their, yeah, yeah. their work in the transfer market but it's not just that I keep coming back to the piece that uh, Alison wrote a couple of weeks ago about the culture and like it's like a buzzword that everyone throws around now you gotta go into clubs sometimes and people say it's, you know, it's all about the culture okay but it, it kind of is with Spurs like Tony's just gone through from top to bottom about leadership roles and now Paratici's gone there's, there's yeah. no one overseeing the football department there's no one overseeing the coaching because they don't have a permanent manager there's major doubt about Harry Kane, who's their talisman, and Loris looks like it's getting towards a stage where he needs to be put out to pasture, and he's the captain. Yeah. So there was obviously, you know, there was a thing last week about Levy, Levy speaking at the, I think it was the Cambridge... Uh, yeah, yeah. Oxford, Union. Oxford Union or Cambridge, Cambridge Union, Union, I think, yeah. yeah. And, you know, answering more questions there than he has at any point in most yeah. of the last of 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And I saw something written that in the 20 years, uh, Levy's hired 10 permanent coaches who between them have won 61 trophies before and after managing Spurs and they've won one in that time so like all the things it's always been a you know a double edged sword with, with Spurs the development the growth everything that's happened in that time of the club has been extraordinary but there's been something missing about making them a winning football team and that's ultimately what everyone aspires to be in the field I hope, um, for Tottenham fans' sake, that any prospective managers like Julian Nagelsmann and all the like haven't just listened to Tony and Gregor on the last uh, five minutes of this podcast because they won't be joining them. Because that, well, but, that, but that's a serious thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm being slightly jokey, but we've talked a lot about Chelsea and the crisis they're in. Tottenham have almost put themselves in a crisis yeah, yeah, position yeah. now. Yeah. As it was a season of such hope, hype as well, and promise we're going to challenge you know for the title. They're going to be in the top four, and now I mean they're still only fifth. 
but they're kind of falling away and it looks completely lost. It's it's becoming a bit completely disastrous season, slightly reminiscent of the Ralph Ranick era at Manchester United almost where that kind of change was made to almost stop the rot and actually it just made the rot far, far worse. I mean, I don't know, Tone, any young manager, Julian Nagelsmann or other, looking at Tottenham and thinking, yeah, I fancy that? Well, look, let's let's be honest. Uh, if the job came up, which it is going to be up, there'll be uh, lots and lots of candidates. It always happens in football. It makes me laugh because when Coventry advertised their job a few years back, there was about 150 candidates for the job. Now, obviously, a lot of them wouldn't have been the choice of most of the fans. But I do think I would want... I know I talked about Vincent Company. I, you know, people reacted to that. And I just said, look... I want a guy who can go in and fire fire and be a leader. You know, he's been an ultimate leader during his career and he's shown he's got the ability off the field. Now, is that is that a door that could be open for him? I think there's always managers around. I, I look at some managers and, and just think, why are you not given a chance? Why has no bigger club go for you? This idea of just going after guys who have won, won things in their career clearly hasn't worked for them and yet... They've been great managers. But do you go after Nagelsmann, who's been rejected or kicked out of Bayern Munich? Or do you try and go for someone... Harshly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, Gregor, I'm not criticising him as a manager, but is he going to be the man to come to Spurs? I mean, I've seen his team play. They are unbelievably offensive. They just come at you from everywhere. He's always I saw him at Hoffenheim as a manager and, it, and, and really loved the way they play. But it was crazy football. I've got, I've got to be honest. It really was. And he did a similar job at Leipzig. Um, so I get it. I mean, you can't say no to anybody. That You know, you just got to find the man that you really believe takes the club to a different direction. No, but right. I, do you know what I mean with... Management's are like a transfer. There's no guarantee, is there? There's no guarantee on a manager. You'd like to think you can get as close as Guardiola was obviously a guarantee at, at Manchester City, but everything was in place at Manchester exactly. City. Exactly. That's what the, that's the modern way now. That's yeah. like, and Spurs haven't really done that. They've no. like they've almost tried to the stadium for the club to suit the club to suit the manager rather than the manager to suit the club. Yeah. So like Mourinho and, and Conte did not suit. Spurs, yeah, but yeah. but what are they coming to? What, what, they, what do they suit? What are, what are they actually coming? What are Spurs now? Like that's the mm. thing. Well, they, they, uh, they, uh, that, that that did exist to an extent in the in the past, yeah, but yeah, now yeah. then when everything was thrown into the stadium, it's like they've lost any idea of what that identity well, is. They, they just and sac- then they, they, then appointed they, they the sacrificed what the soul of the football club should be because people had become fed up of not winning anything. So then they went right. Let's just become winners. Let's bring in people who've won, and they will make us winners. And we'll change for them, exactly as you say. But I just don't think it can be the case with Tottenham. I think they've had an identity for too long and they've just moved too far away from it to the point where, like Tony says, it becomes toxic because the fans just hate going, hate what they're seeing. The players hate being there. The managers hate being there. The question marks are all... uh, The other thing about it is, you know, in terms of expectation, it went too far because you brought in a serial winner. So everyone goes, well, Tottenham are going to win something, or they should be winning something. And then you've got the manager saying, well, hold on a minute, no, we shouldn't be winning something, because clearly we aren't in a position, we haven't got the squad, we haven't invested in the, we haven't approached football in the way that teams that are winning things are. But then people go, but hold on a minute, why are you here then, Antonio Conte? And then obviously it just becomes totally disjointed, so many question marks flying in from every angle and suddenly, with with obviously no positive answers, and then suddenly you're in an absolutely torrid position. I mean, I'm, I'm, funnily enough, we've got the calls up here from, from TalkSport just because we're using one of their studios. Tottenham fans ringing in and it's just like Sax Stellini today. Absolute disgrace. Like, 
dozens of them. So mm. I, I, that's a small indication of how they're feeling this morning. So, well, like I said at the very start. Davison Sanchez was the week before, but is they're aiming, they're firing guns at everybody. But the, the the biggest problem is at the very top of the football club. That has to be resolved, whether it's a sell on and move it to other buyers. Because I don't believe that until that's resolved, they're going to find the man to to change the the culture, as the, the famous word is at Tottenham. We shall see if Nagelsmann and Enrique have dropped out of the running for Chelsea because that club's too much of a basket case. I don't think we're going to see them rocking up at Spurs anytime soon. But uh, yeah, one of the most embarrassing, one of the most memorable defeats in Spurs Premier League history. Up next, we will talk about some big games at the bottom very quickly. We'll talk Manchester United as well. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, hit the notification button. Make sure you're subscribed. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Some massive games at the bottom, of course. Every weekend we're pretty much going to have this. We'll have some more in midweek as well. I'll start with Leicester City, who boosted their chances of surviving, fighting back to beat Wolves in Dean Smith's first home game in charge. Timothy Castagna's goal secured the three points. It lifts them out of the relegation zone on goal difference, up to 17th after ending a run of nine games without a win. How big was it for Dean Smith, for Leicester City? Well, you said it there, it's stopping the rot as much as anything. I think Leicester, we talked about it before, they've got, I'm reluctant to say the kindest fixture list, but they've got games against teams around them, um, like this one where at home they had the chance to win. That was the most important thing. (laughs) I don't necessarily think that it's, oh, well, Leicester have turned it around, now we're going to see them put together a run. I think they could easily play against Leeds and struggle, uh, particularly away from home. I don't think it was necessarily a performance that told me that my prediction last week that they would go down would necessarily be drastically wrong. Um, But yeah, the most important thing was to stop the rot and get a win after that terrible run. And they did it. They did it. I don't know if it was stylish per se, Gregor, but it was interesting to see the approach from Dean Smith, which was essentially, we need goals. So Pats and Dak are starting, Jamie Vardy starting, Kelechi Iheanacho starting. And I I looked at it and thought, where's the balance going to be? But they they played well. Yeah, Iheanacho's kind of in a little bit of a number 10 role it's been massive as well that Christensen's come back he's been pretty impressive actually yeah. since he came from Copenhagen in January and then he got an injury and it's his ball for Castagna really good cutback no Madison either with a sickness bug after that and Tielemann's blunder you know to go behind it was they could have clammed up or you know gone under and so it was in, yeah massive mm. massive vital this week is vital for them 
yeah. this week is definitive. It could be for a number of clubs, but no more, no one more so than than Leicester. Isn't it incredible, Hugh? Just on one quick word, isn't it incredible? We had different opinions from coaches, managers, where Sorensen comes back into the team after being discarded by Brendan Rodgers, who had had a great you know season or two, gets dropped, left out. New manager comes in. I thought he was. He was Leicester's best performance at the weekend, and uh, it just shows you different opinions of getting the best out of players. I was reading that in Charlotte Dunker's piece this morning, and she was saying, you know, clean slate, and I was like, oh, that old cliche. <laughs> and then, but then I re- read on, and I was like, oh, hang on, that's he's been excellent. And then there's other people who be, who were kind of in the wilderness, um, Vestergaard, yeah. yeah. you know, people, and they, they said, I want to play in an under 21s game in the week because he wants to play for his future, he wants to try yeah. and get in the team. A new manager comes, that's what happens. And it's a very simple thing, but it can be quite important, particularly if you've got a player who was Sonic was brilliant for Leicester for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I think it was a lot there was maybe a contract standoff for a while as well, wasn't there? Yeah. So clean slate, that's been a big part of it. Huge week in which I think they can, if they take all nine points in particular, survive in the Premier League. Away at Leeds United tomorrow, and then they host Everton at the weekend. You know, you, you kind of think Leicester City, do they have it in them to win all three games? I might as well mention Leeds here because I think, you know, that game tomorrow, it's huge. They were beaten at Fulham. Uh, Leicester tomorrow night, as I say, uh, it's a classic relegation six-pointer, but then they've also got Bournemouth at the weekend. So they're in a very similar position this week, Leeds and Leicester in that. They have three matches in a row against relegation rivals and you think, oh, if you have a, if you have a good week, you could stay up. Leeds clearly have made the worst start to, to the week because they lost and obviously Leicester have made the best start because they won so going into it will that factor much? Well Leeds are in a real you know after a bit of a fill up from Gracia's appointment I think they've conceded 13 goals in the last three games now and they weren't really they looked kind of although it was it looked like a narrow scoreline against Fulham it was a pretty comprehensive defeat in terms of the way they approached the game they were pretty cautious yeah, unadventurous, not much in the way of attacking endeavour, really. And they always looked quite shaky at the back. So a couple of instances where they were driving the box and Liam Cooper kind of real last last ditch challenge. He did like a scissor kick on the floor at one stage, and I thought, crikey, so 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 nearly could have been a penalty. They just for, for so long they've been really poor at the back, and and obviously, Grassy's arrival changed something for a while. But it's uh, it's even he looked lost for words. He said. We need to find the kind of find find some semblance of the form that they had when he first arrived. If they've got to, if they're going to stand a chance. We talked about Arsenal not changing style. I think I've mentioned it with Gracia's appointment that maybe he'd made Leeds a little bit less mad and a little bit less mental and frenetic. But actually, I wonder with a home game relegation six pointer, just forget all that. Get Ellen Road behind them, make it a bit mad, make it a kitchen bit crazy. Sink. Yeah, kitchen sink style. I think yeah. that's the only way to go. Interesting again, you know, we're going back to managers and coaches making decisions. He left out his two fullbacks to near Fulham, Furpo and Aileen, you know, which I thought was a big call. You know, Aileen's been a player for Leeds for a long time. I think Furpo's had a difficult time since he came from Barcelona. Yep. Um, but it was a big call that he made, and it didn't necessarily, although they only lost game 2 1, I mean, the keeper's not had his greatest day, has he? You know, I. Talked about that with not being able to keep hold of the ball and catch it. Just simple things you sort of expect from keepers. Massive game for Leeds United uh, this week because, although okay, Leicester are around them, they don't look like they're capable of winning anything at the minute. So it's a big game for them. 
Uh, Bournemouth hammered by West Ham this weekend. It lifts West Ham up to 13th in the table. Six points clear of the relegation zone. Just about safe, in my opinion. Uh, Bournemouth, one point and two places behind them in 15th. Remember, West Ham put to Europa Conference League semi-final. Since we last spoke, they will meet Dutch side AZ Alkmaar after a 4-1 win against Ghent at the London Stadium. Back-to-back European semi-finals for David Moyes. Uh, worth complimenting West Ham for that. But uh, again, are West Ham safe after this result of the weekend? And is their form kind of coming around now? I think a little bit. I think it was most interesting. You look too pleased. This no. is like David Moyes, public representative. Here. Well, I'm going to. No, I'm actually, I'm actually not going to dig him out. I'm actually just going to point to some of the comments he made after the game, saying things like, oh, I hope the fans enjoyed that one. Little hint number <laughs> one. And then there's another comment about Paqueta saying, this is the player I thought I was getting. Hint number two, I made a big signing and he's been crap. It's not my fault. So, you know, there was a there was a heavy tone of this isn't my fault. This is just what I should have been having all season. It would have been much different. Stick with me. Yeah, I mean, all the murmurings are suggesting that there were, could still be a change in the summer at West Ham, even if, say, they win the Europa Conference League and even if they actually end up in kind of 12th, it could still make a change. So it's interesting from that point of view. They could be the only London club in the Premier League that win a trophy. They could. And, you know, we're looking upon them as a, a team that have been, and they have been poor. I've been really surprised. It's interesting the weekend that they score from, I think, three set pieces. It's sort of, you recognise Antonio's goal with his header yeah. and, you know, just getting on the end of things. That's West Ham at their very best because they are a strong team when they get, you know, set pieces to, to make a difference. And I was surprised by the result. I thought Bournemouth had been really good when I've watched them in recent weeks. And to get beat 4-0 at home by West Ham? But you know what it is? It was, it's what you're talking about a little bit earlier on in terms of the basics. You know, good sides do the basics well. Great sides do the basics brilliantly. They never make any errors. Oh, and West... Me. This is Twice. my point, exactly. And West Ham, they went through a period where Aged and Zuma, they were making yeah, the basic yeah. errors and they were losing games off the back of it. They cut the errors out. Suddenly they're getting results. You look at Bournemouth... You know, in the games that they're not making errors, they get results. As soon as they start making errors, they get hammered. You know, it is, it's about that consistency. Lloyd Kelly, yeah, he kind of twice opened up and tried to play the pass out wide, got away with it the first time, second time, it led to a goal. You're yeah. absolutely right. They have to skirt it over the the, uh, the Conference League game. That second half was like, felt quite powerful, actually. Yeah. You, I think you were at the game as well, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't see it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we would. It was like Declan Rice's run and goal. That period after half time was like electric. Yeah. And it's never been, it's not been like that at the London Stadium. And it's definitely not been like that in the Conference League. I've covered most of the. Yeah, yeah. They've got through in second gear. And they finally they realised that they had to pull something out. And they did it. And yeah. it was like, you could see Moyes after as well. He was really, really. He said, he said I'm smiling. Like, yeah. it's not often. Mm. Again, he was kind of a humble brag. He's like, somebody might correct me, but I don't think it's the worst time I've ever been in consecutive European semi finals. No, I think you're right, David. They, no, they have. They have. That's the worst thing. They have. All oh, right. Well, yeah, sorry, their first David, two seasons in European competition, West Ham, I think, got to semi-finals. Cup, yeah, yeah, they got, they got yeah. to semi-finals in their first two seasons, I think. Oh, well, there was no one that, educated yeah, enough in the yeah, press yeah. conference. To I think it was nineteen. I want to say nineteen seventy-five. In fact, so it wasn't their first two seasons in Europe. I Why think are you looking at me here? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But. Um, but yeah, do you know what? I was going to say that the only time that it was electric like that at the London Stadium that I've been there for 
was when they got to the, the Europa last League season. semi-finals yeah. last season. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was making, you know, I remember talking at the time about how this is going to bring the club together, and they're finally harmonious. And they even liked the London Stadium after all of this. And there was there was kind of that feeling on Thursday, but also at the weekend, you kind of felt that they were all like, it's clicked. Yeah, we're actually a much stronger side than we've been showing, and we're confident. And that's the big thing from here on out. So I wouldn't be surprised if they win the Europa Conference League, which would be obviously massive for West Ham United. But certainly looks like they're going to be staying in the Premier League if they keep playing like this, which was good. Uh, the one thing that I think stood out to me in both of these games is De- is Declan Rice. You mentioned the goal. Funnily enough, the goal against Ghent came after a period where Ghent I was were passing the ball around really lovely, and I was like, "Wow, they look really confident. This is going to be a tough night." And they passed it into one of their centre halves, who had a heavy touch, then slipped trying to recover the ball, and Rice picks it up and literally runs it in, smashes it in the bottom corner from there, and you're like, "Right, game's over." But actually, I think Declan Rice, even at the weekend is showing us you know I, I, I look at it I think if someone says to me at the end of the season why did West Ham stay up I'll say because they had a Champions League player mm. in their team they, you know, they were the only team down there that did mm. that's kind of how I'm viewing Declan Rice at the moment and yeah I got asked the other night who's he going to play for next season and I, I don't know I just don't Do you know, know. It's, a, it's an interesting debate isn't it about the most important player for every team and talk about them you know like you'd say Declan Rice uh, mm. certainly uh, West Ham and you could you know would you say James Madison at Leicester would you say Wal Prowse at Southampton you know all these players who have probably should be playing a higher level as in the teams they play for let's talk about Everton because they're really, out of all the sides that we've discussed so far, maybe alongside Leeds United, um, they don't look like they're going to produce that victory, that run that might take them away from, from trouble. Um, it was a draw away at Crystal Palace, so I've got to say, it wasn't a bad result. Five games without a win, they are in the relegation zone. They failed to win any of their past 14 away matches in all competitions. That is their worst run on the road in over 42 years. Newcastle on Thursday at Goodison Park. So not the best way to warm up for a huge game against Leicester at the weekend. Uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin was back in this game. Looked quite sharp as well. Will he be enough? That's the question. They've always just been reliant on him coming back and producing what they know they can. It's still going to be so so hard to call. I mean, I'm just looking at their running as well. You said Newcastle, then Leicester, then Brighton away, then City at home. Then Wolves away, then Bournemouth at home. So like they've got some games that you just feel are almost a write off the way they're playing just now. But they do have the opportunity to take points off. If Bournemouth are still in it, we think Wolves are safe. They could be on the beach by then. Uh and the Leicester game's huge. So they're like again, they're season defining games. They absolutely have to win those games if they're if they're gonna stay up. This is what's so strange and why Gregor keeps talking about not being able to call this relegation fight is that you know, even with Sean Dyche, and we referenced it earlier with Gracia at Leeds, these teams have seemed to have like a little uptick, the little kind of man- new manager bounce, but it's not been sustained. Dyche got a win against Arsenal, when Arsenal were kind of flying as well. And then it's just dropped off and you kind of, for a while we thought that tactic of, oh, he's, he's brilliant, he doesn't even need a striker. It's going to work, play 4-6, your formation, it'll be fine, they'll get a 1-0 win. Oh, it's so Sean Dyche. That's, it's, that's kind of fallen off, so that's why this relegation fight's been so difficult to call. I would still say that with Dyche and his experience and the group of players that he's got, they'll just about have enough. Three draws in the last five games. I could see draws being their saviour. Um, and that was the point that was uh, this weekend. That Palace ended up going at 10 men. OK, survived late on. Didn't deserve anything from the game. The draw's the best they can get. He'll take a draw literally in a heartbeat against Newcastle at Goodison Park this week. I think he'll take it immediately. Yeah. 
No, it's impossible to call, but looking at the kind of full landscape of the season, I, I'm increasingly thinking that it's out of the bottom three just now in Leeds. I think Leicester yeah, have yeah, enough goals yeah, yeah. and they have the opportunity to, to take points from those teams as well. Leeds are in free fall and Everton, they don't have goals, they don't have... They don't have spirit. Some games and other mm. games they do, like you say. Again, at Goodison it's rocking, and then other games they look like they're going under. So, and we're going to come and talk about Forest. So, I personally think it's from those four teams. Nottingham Forest beaten by Liverpool at the weekend. Gregor, you were there. Entertaining game. Important. Second half. First half was yeah, awful. Yeah, entertaining <laughs> second half. An important three points for Liverpool as well. But ultimately, you reflect on this game, you think Nottingham Forest just need to defend better. Talked about the basics earlier. What was happening with that Forest defensive line? And I don't want you to get too deep because the Forest fans might remind us of what happened when you were there. But <laughs> 19 goals conceded from set pieces, Gregor. That is the second most in the Premier League. I think it's the first time they scored two goals away from home. And they did it at Anfield. They they looked a threat on the break, even in the first half. Like Any time there was a transition, Gibbs White got on the ball and he turned... They looked dangerous, and they also looked very dangerous from long throw-ins. And you, you know, as much that's what was so weird about this game: Forest couldn't defend set pieces, and Liverpool couldn't defend long throw-ins, and that ultimately defined the game. So, like for Forest to score two goals at Anfield, and also with you know on both occasions once they levelled, throw away the, well, basically hand Liverpool the lead back again within a few minutes. Steve Cooper was just so frustrated afterwards, but he's tried to remain positive. Said he saw enough, like. You know, green shoots from from the performance to to from to think that they've they've got a chance if they play that well um, going forward, but they can't shoot themselves in the foot like that. It was Freuler was the the yeah. biggest culprit. He it was like he was turning his back to organise everyone, and Robertson just swung the ball in, and uh, that was for Jota's goal, which he took very well. And then another one, he I think again he wasn't ready for the for the quick delivery, and he got the wrong side of Salah, and he tried to grapple him, he tried to do anything he could to hold him back, and he's finished it anyway. So it was. Yeah, hugely frustrating for Forrest, thank you. Just wanted to talk about Manchester United, um, who set up that first FA Cup final against Manchester City. They beat Brighton. Penalty shootout at Wembley Stadium. Brighton had chances to reach their first FA Cup final since losing to United in 1983. Solly March skying the decisive penalty. Remember, United dumped out of the Europa League last week after a 3-0 second leg defeat in the quarterfinals away at Sevilla. I've got two words written down for this, which is poor game. I probably should have more, really. But, uh, <laughs> Is that it? Is that you said we we're going to do a quick oh, bit on Manchester United? Yeah. Poor game. Yeah. Thanks for listening. See you later. Yeah. What did you think? Well, you ain't wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, Brighton, I felt, were the more ambitious. Very little to choose between the two teams. I thought it was Brighton, if they're guilty of one thing, was carrying the ball way too often and just the quality in the last third of the pitch cost them dearly. Um, Fernandez, I thought, was decent for probably the first half of the, of the first half. United were poor in many areas in, on the day and um, it's hard to see them getting past City. Maybe it's a penalty shootout because they were so delighted at the penalty shootout. I mean, watching Vegables at the end doing a sprint and sliding on his knees to a penalty shootout win. That was the best bit of the game, Tony. Don't lie. Come on. The, blo- <laughs> the bloke can't believe his luck that he's at Manchester United. He's ke- he comes on, he scores a penalty in the shootout, which, let's be honest, everyone in the office and everyone around the country is thinking he's not rolling this in. And then, at the end, rather than run to his teammates, he turns and does a knee slide in front of the fans because he's thinking, how am I here? I'm in another Wembley final. Come on, give the guy a bit of credit. 
<laughs> I think Tom's nailed that perfectly. Yeah. To be honest. I mean, just just very quickly on the penalties on a more serious point like with the United. I think the fact that they scored all seven pens with the players that they had on the pitch. I know Sancho and Sancho stepping up as well, huge for him. But they didn't have necessarily that many attacking players. Bruno Fernandes had gone off. But the fact that they scored all seven pens and Eric Ten Hag has spoken after the game about how much they practiced them, not just not just in the build-up to this game, but all season, that says a lot about how Ten Hag has got, basically literally squeezed everything he can out of this squad this season. They've got to a second final, you know, thinking about like playing to Marcus Rashford's strengths because he's the best player, scoring more goals from set pieces, and now winning this game, as Tony says, when they were the underdogs almost, playing like the underdogs. But but scoring and having Victor Lindelof score your final penalty for a winner, bang it in the top corner. He has got absolutely everything he possibly can out of this squad of players with terms of the quality and experience they've got. And I think he deserves credit for that. Do you think, uh, just one little final point, do you think keeping a clean sheet and that really will be the end of Maguire as a centre-half because Shaw went in there and played alongside He was fantastic, Lindelof. wasn't he? I, I thought about that after the game and thought, do you know what, that's not worked out well for Maguire. I tend to agree with you, Tony, to be perfectly honest. Um, Harry Maguire will be sold in the summer, I'm sure of it. Someone will feel like they can get a bargain and with the right tactics, with the right coaching, get a very decent centre-half in Harry Maguire, who's not that bad on the ball. Obviously, we know he hasn't got the pace on the turn, but um, if you're playing in a back three with the experience that he has as well, I'm sure he could do a job. And And the funny thing is, I think he could do a job at a big club in Europe, you know, you look at the Italian league, for example, and the the defence is usually tighter and deeper, and you think Maguire would, you know, look... Chris Smalling, Mark II, the yeah, other the, defender it, it, who left Manchester United well, because he wasn't good enough. Would Jose Mourinho get Harry Maguire in at who, Roma? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Harry Maguire, is all about, it's all about confidence for him, though. Like, like he, needs to, he needs to do something to... To change his mindset because he I think, look, I think he a new environment. Like he's happy on the pitch. But I think all. I think a new environment because ultimately he's been put into a position now where he can't make he can't make a mistake. And so I imagine that the nerves and the feelings that he has playing football are not what you you need to get your confidence back. So I think a new environment would do him well. Sean um, Dyche should take him tomorrow. Yeah, I bet he would. Yeah, <laughs> uh, very quickly, um, Tony. Just to win the podcast, there's been a couple of teams promoted. Um, Leighton Orient, congratulations yeah. uh, on their way into League One. Wrexham on their way into the Football League. You know, Why did you whisper? I, I had to. I, well, I was about to say I had to whisper. There's enough noise around Wrexham. Exactly, that is exactly what I was going to say. Exactly, that's why I whispered because um, yeah, you're going to hear a lot more about Wrexham. But um, celebrating going up, Tony. Yeah, because I've heard a little rumor that, that a couple of these teams have had a very good time since they <laughs> since they I say a couple of them, both of them. So, uh, have you been promoted? Do you know stories of those going up and how they uh, how they enjoyed themselves? I've had four promotions in my career and enjoyed every one of them. And sometimes before the end of the season, even better. You've earned the right. Um, we one particular one, which was probably the funniest, we got promoted with Millwall, and uh, a lad who I played alongside called Steve Wood, who lived local to me, said uh, on the Monday, "Should we meet up with a few of the boys?" And I said, "Yeah." Well, that didn't end till Friday, and we played Blackburn <laughs> in the last day, home game of the season, and uh, we got beat four-one. So don't be anybody out there. Don't be surprised if there'll be some weird results to any team that's had promotion because yeah. they will enjoy it. Even at the very top end, there's nothing more special than... Because you're celebrating a whole season. You're not celebrating just that day. You're celebrating the whole of the season, all the hard work, and, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed every one of them. Just fairly quickly, I got a, 
I'm not going to pain you guys. It's a bit wrecksome. But I got a, a really nice uh, email from from a guy Colin in uh, Connecticut, USA. He's got Scottish heritage as well. She was pleased to tell me about. Um, but he was saying that he's enjoyed us speaking about wrecksome and and the writing in the Times and whatnot. But he thinks the thing actually, I don't know, there's huge. Obviously, it's all about Hollywood yeah. and the the people who bought the club. But the thing that's really captured in the imagination of people in the USA, in particular, is promotion. Although, although you know, we speak about it, go, mm. oh, we love the pyramid, or we mm. love the fact that you can go up and down the three mm. leagues, mm. and then that's it. Left, he thinks that's actually the fundamental thing that everyone is is astonished by the fact you can take up this small club, this club that no one's ever heard of, in like you know a town in the northwest, and potentially take them right through to the Premier League. Mm. That is that is kind of the root of yeah. The fascination, kind of globally and particularly in the US, about the Wrexham story. So, and there's a long way to go. We can be certain of that. Do you think they'll get promoted next season? I think they'll be favourites. Right. Okay. On that note, plenty more to come from Wrexham, I'm sure, in the next season. Uh, and yes, congratulations to them and Leighton Orient. And uh, we will see if there are more champions crowned very, very soon. Might be one de facto crowned at the whim at the Etihad on Wednesday so we shall see uh, anyway gentlemen been a pleasure uh, once again on a Monday morning Gregor Robertson Tom Clark and Tony Cascarino thank you very much thank you all for listening as well as it's Monday make sure you check out the game loads of great writing uh, after that weekend of football you can pick up a newspaper of course download the Times app and of course you can subscribe online it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you on Thursday with a lot to talk about see you then iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.